Today, on The Orange Table, we're diving into part two of our episode on environmental racism. Here is our interview with Keely and Jessica from Natives of Princeton. I'm Jessica. I'm a citizen of the Choctaw Nation, and I'm a junior at Princeton in the Department of Anthropology with certificates in environmental studies and technology and society. Hi. Um... I'm Keely, I'm Navajo, and I'm also a junior. Uh, I study anthropology just like Jessica, and I'm getting certificates in environmental studies and hopefully in indigenous studies, if we get that going. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Okay, so um, our first question is language matters, and sometimes people aren't certain of which terms indigenous people in America prefer. So before we dive into the conversation, what are some names to avoid and which would we prefer to use today? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think I run into this a lot, um, just like in the classroom and in everyday life. And I think that there's no like blanket statement on like what is okay and what is not okay because of how diverse tribal nations are and I feel like every tribe and every person has what they personally prefer. And I I feel like I definitely jump in between a lot of different terms. Um, so like I'll say American Indian and native and indigenous and just sort of whatever rolls off my tongue. Um, Cause I've sort of grown up, I feel like I'm from the Choctaw nation which is in Oklahoma. And my mom used to work at the BIA which is sort of engaging in sort of this federal relationship and more of the legal terms, which tend to be American Indian and Oklahoma just tends to be more geared towards saying American Indian. Um, and then I feel like the younger generations and especially like people from the Southwest and maybe Keely can talk about this, but prefer native. Um, and then indigenous is sort of, I see it more as just like a broader term that people use to talk about indigenous people sort of encompassing people from across the world. Yeah, Jessica, you did a really good job. <laughs> and I would, I would add to that is just like, it's very much tied to, you know, what setting and what space you're in as well as like who's around you when you use these like different names or different ways to recognize one another. Yeah, I like American Indian is very much the federal language like if you're doing the SAT or you're filling out like another form of like SS or your race, it's like American Indian, Alaska Native. And, you know, it's it's still kind of like, I get like why the US government does that to categorize people, but at the same time, like American Indian doesn't really capture like those from Central or South America, like those those who are indigenous, like Indigena, India, Indio actually. And it's like very much like kind of, what's the word, kind of pigeonholed like the American Indian or like the native into this like one one image. And I would have to add like, you know, if I'm around other natives, I just go like, oh yeah, we're native or like more specifically if we're like, if there's a bunch of tribal nations, we're all native, but like, how do you differentiate our different, you know, traditions or different cultures or different art and dances. And so normally like if you're among other natives, the most respectful way to be like, is like, hey, what's your nation? Yeah, I, I love that point, Keely, around specificity, because I think sometimes with terms like indigenous or native, like you're describing such a broad swath of people that it kind of loses its meaning. So I, I love that you're, you're putting forward this best practice of 
I guess just asking people what nation they're from and getting that specific understanding of who they are. I, I really think that's that's a good idea for everyone going forward. I do want to dive into, I mean, there's so many things to go after in terms of areas in which you guys can have an impact um, on increasing awareness and increasing, um, I guess, the quality of life for Indigenous students. But <laughs> the primary thing is getting that representation to begin with. And there have been concerns in the past around Indigenous student representation, um, much less faculty. So kind of give us a sense of where we're at right now. Um, yeah, and what you guys are doing to, to I guess, increase the representation of um, Indigenous students on our campus. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I just, first things first, it's like there's always been natives at Princeton. And even, and even back when like Princeton was established, like the numbers were small and it's always kind of been small, you know, it's been like maybe 10, maybe like 15 at most, like, but who are like active and like actively coming together. There's not a big population and compared to how many, you know, students who are admitted into Princeton. Um, but I do like, there's been a lot of, action recently and there's been always been action but it's been very receptive lately just because like we have been making a lot of noise and we have been you know trying to get into conversations and we've been like finding one another to work together like Jessica and I became really good friends with the work that we do because we were like hey you're native I didn't know that <laughs> and so like coming together and being like you know this school doesn't have a lot of support for us you know we kind of feel like ignored or just like not seen and so like just that struggle it's like why we've started to do all this Jessica what would you say yeah yeah I feel like in recent like months and definitely over the past year there's been a lot more visibility but still very little representation and sort of on the student side of things I think like whoever does the statistics for the university says there are like 68 or so native students. Um, and that's sort of a very, I don't know, nuanced understanding of like who checks the box and there are all sorts of complexities that come with that. Um, and then of like native students that we know, I would say there are maybe 15. Um, and I, I I don't think, I think I know what, like, what, two from the class of 2024 yeah. that I can think of. Um, I mean, I hope that admissions is doing a better job at like recruiting native students. It's just like so hard because you get into the situation where they're not gonna sort of, no matter how much recruiting you do, um, they're not gonna wanna come somewhere that's not gonna support them. And that just doesn't have those institutional structures that are there and resources to help Native students survive at a school like this. Um, that's just not something that a lot of people are willing to do, rightfully so. Um, and then on the faculty faculty side of things, I think we have we have one um, First Nations professor who does Indigenous studies, and I think a few like Indigenous, more broadly globally professors. And then I think there might be a few others that we're not aware of um, and that might not sort of like outwardly um, very explicitly identify as Native, but are also Native. Um, but it's pretty, pretty
pretty minute. <laughs> yeah, just to add, but I would, I think like a big point about this is that, you know, there's not a lack of Native students who are going into higher education and wanting to get mm -hmm. degrees. You know, there's, there's Indian country is everywhere. And so, you know, there's a lot of students who are wanting to, you know, make, want to like, you know, receive higher education and go on to develop their careers. And you want to ask why they're not at Princeton? Well, look at what we have to offer. Can you like name, how many native students can you name on your hand? Like not really. And I think like how many times have you been in a class where native students or native topics are covered, but there wasn't a native student to like back up or like, you know, like talk about their own experiences, like take any environmental course and you're going to have indigenous movements brought up at least once or like a reading at least once. And so like, it's hard to see because there's a whole demand of this indigenous studies, like especially in environmental, like there are so many theses, like Jessica can talk about how many theses and junior papers have been written about indigenous studies or indigenous peoples or indigenous movements. And that we don't have an indigenous or native professor to teach those, you know? We're teaching things through like a very white lens, very much educated, but very much like doesn't know or have lived those experiences. I wanna make Princeton that place that native students feel at home. And so, yeah, it's tough. I think it's tough, but we're very much strong and we're very much like fighting for what we believe in. And so I'm glad to have like Jessica and people like you all who want to hear what we have to say. Keely and I got a grant from RISE, which is through the Pace Center to do, we sort of interviewed native student leaders and admissions officers that specifically focus on native admissions at Princeton's peer institutions, which for the purposes of this, we classified as the Ivies and Stanford. And I think what really came through most clearly for me that the like pretty much single most important factor to creating a welcoming space for Native students and having Native students want to come to your school and to be supported there is some sort of physical designated space. And when you look at schools that have big Native populations like Dartmouth, Stanford, Cornell, they have residential houses for Native students where you can live and be in community and talk about um, your struggles and what you're going through and just have a community of people who support you and they also, in addition to a residential space, will also have some sort of like community center um, where native students can gather and like libraries and conference rooms and just spaces. And I feel like for us, it's hard because we don't have a physical space and that cuts out like a lot of these sort of impromptu community building, like running into native students who you might not otherwise know, you know, we don't have a space to go to. And I think that this is somewhere where Princeton's not only lacking when it comes to native students, but with a lot of other minorities, because we're all sort of like shoehorned into the calf center, which is like at the end of Prospect Street. I don't enjoy walking down that street to start. And then the only space for these students is like these tiny rooms on the second floor. And when you look at what other schools have to offer, they have huge houses and residential areas for all these students. And they have staff members for each group. And Princeton just pales in comparison. Yeah, and I mean, let's let's talk about it because I see Aisha like snapping her fingers in response and we're all obviously very animated about this criticism of 
like all of these disparate identities, non-white people, non-Western cultures, I guess, being lumped into the calf um, and not given their individual spaces. Uh, yeah, and I just think in general, there's a lot of misconceptions around what what affinity spaces are. I think a lot of like conservatives and like people on the right have kind of misconstrued what we're asking for and kind of tried to play it off as this snowflake demand of I get like a safe space. I hate using that word. I like to use affinity space because I think we're not asking for these spaces because we are petrified of a white world and that we don't feel like we want to, I want to be around black people and you want to only be around natives because we can't function in the white world. It's like, we don't, we don't have the luxury of anything other than functioning in this majority white country. Um, and all that we're asking for is some sort of space where people who have similar cultures, similar experiences can get together and like, and discuss those things in a, in a physical space. Um, I mean, go to any small town in America and you'll find a Ukrainian center and a Norwegian center or a Scandinavian center. Um, and I think we really respect that idea, the idea that certain nationalities, countries, people of race, of similar races also have similar experiences. Um, we respect that idea that people with similar experiences want to sometimes congregate and talk about those experiences and share in those cultural traditions. So nothing should be different here and it kind of frustrates me sometimes why why people try to co-opt affinity spaces and turn them into something that they're not yeah I, we even have like heard of alumni who are like where do we go during alumni like when we come back for reunions they're like i i like we know some alumni who don't even come back for reunions because there's no place for them to gather like there's no place that's you know, a happy place with memories that they had at Princeton. Like, if we can have that many, if we can have a whole street just for like what kind of personality or like your zodiac for like eating clubs, like, oh, if you're, these are all the Leos or whatever, like, these are all the white dudes who go here. Like, why can't we have that for, for other groups? Yeah, I think you guys make such interesting points because like, I always would think about the eating clubs, how there's like, there's literally just like mansions like down a street. And somehow like every single like non-white male identity is like encompassed into this one house at the very end of it. And we're all just supposed to be okay with that. Like that's ridiculous. Like, I don't know what the university is thinking we're just gonna be okay with that. That's ridiculous, but um, I have another, I have a question for each of you guys, but I, I think you guys kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, but um, Jessica, my question, my first question for you is just like, you kind of talked about this already, but as someone of mixed um, ancestry, how do you navigate Princeton? Like you talked about how in your town you always felt like you need to like maybe overcompensate, like like keep telling everyone that like oh like I'm native, I'm native, I'm native, and maybe how how has it been like going to Princeton in this new environment and having to reintroduce yourself to people that don't know your identity? And then for Kiwi, I guess my question is just like you kind of talked about this already, but how do you feel just being a uh, person who mainly maybe like presents more as native and like how do you kind of navigate Princeton social spaces, social society? Yeah, I can start. Um, I guess like first, I don't, I don't think of myself as mixed. I don't see like 
my white identity is and my native identity is conflicting. Um, and I think that's because a lot of people sort of, and this is sort of the way that um, sort of society has been feeding it and is that American Indian is a race and that is just not in any sense really true um, because it's a political identity and it's based on being an enrolled citizen of a tribe. It has no, there are like no phenotypic requirements. There's no requirements other than that you be part of a tribe and enrolled in that tribe. And so I sort of, the way I conceptualize my identity is as racially white and then politically a citizen of the Choctaw Nation and of the United States. And so I guess speaking to your other question about like, how do I deal with navigating Princeton? I think I see just a lot of the same, it's, it's really hasn't been different from high school. Um, pretty much every time I walk into a room, um, I just, whenever I introduce myself, I say, I'm Jessica Lambert, I'm a citizen of the Choctaw Nation. I just try to leave like no room for ambiguity. Um, just because people always assume that I'm white, which is true, but they just always assume that I'm non-Indian. Um, and I think it's because people are just so not used to meeting native people. And it's interesting because like when you go out to Oklahoma, like most of the natives there are very white, um, especially Choctaw Nation. And so there is like a space where it's almost like assumed that you are Choctaw. Um, and it's, it's just a very different experience. But yeah, even at Princeton, like I've gotten a lot of, when I don't like immediately say it, and people also don't know like what the Choctaw Nation is as well. Um, so I feel like I could maybe make it more explicit, but that's what I go with. And I, I can just like interject for a second as a mixed person. People... I think just get so confused by any sort of mixed, I mean, in your case, like a political and racial identity that doesn't automatically make sense to them, or in my case, just a racial identity, because um, I'm I half black and half white. And I, don't know, I, just can, I can think of so many stories, um, so many scenes when I was young where we'd be walking around the grocery store and I'd be with my mom, who's a white woman, and people would stare and like watch us all the way down the aisle. And then um, when my dad came and like stood by us, they'd be like, oh, like, oh, it makes sense. Like, I got it. Um, and then they go about their day. Like they have to put it together. Like anything that doesn't automatically um, on the face make sense to them. Like they're not satisfied until um, they somehow put the puzzle together. And I just, yeah, I think there's not really any reverence or... Um, appreciation for identities that don't automatically come across as something that they've seen before and that makes sense to them but yeah that's just my my fun anecdote but yeah Keely what about what about you I'm from northern Utah and so um like people know about natives so like mostly Navajos or like Hopis or Pueblo at least in my area so I've never really had that like questioning if anything people like to kind of validate themselves and be like oh excuse me, ma'am, this, I'll be like, hmm? I'll be like, are you native? And I'll be like, yes, wow, yes, gold star for you, yes, you guessed it. And they'll be like, oh, and then normally people are like, okay, like, there's nothing even threatening, but it's more like a, 
oh yeah, my great, 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 great grandma was like a Cherokee princess. And I'll be like, you know, the Cherokees are not close to Utah. You do know that like <laughs> they're in the plains <laughs> or sometimes I'd be like, oh, did you know my great, great grandma was a European princess? And they'd be like, whoa, I'd be like, Mm -hmm. goodbye thank you <laughs> you know there's just and it's always because like I have dark hair I've been called Pocahontas before like I've I played Pocahontas in a play before because I was the only native at my school and I thought at first I thought that was really great but looking back on it I'm just like hmm what's happening here and so yeah and I think just like at Princeton there's some people I've actually met a lot of people who had never met like a Native American or like someone who's native before and most people have been really like nice and really genuine about it they'll be like wow like I had no idea like I learned a little bit of your history like with Christopher Columbus and like I'm sorry like for what your people have gone through but and they'll be like you're generally the first native I've met and so those like you know you can kind of tell when it's genuine and it's just kind of like those conversations where you're just like oh you really you're being like very like there's no scorn behind it you're being very genuine right now and it's just those interactions that I like but you know there are times and I well I think one of the hard things is that there's not a lot of natives at Princeton and so there's a lot of people who turn to us to like ask for clarifying or ask for background knowledge or you know if I'm in an auditorium and let's say this has never happened, but like, let's say I'm in an auditorium in a class and like a racial slur is used or like a misconception about native people are made. Like, is it my obligation to correct them? Like, do I wanna put in the energy and that like emotional labor to be like, look person, like you're great. You're, you're, I bet you're educated, but like you're wrong still. And so like, and I think that's, that's always like a personal choice, like no native should have to put their whole, you know, the whole existence of Native America on their shoulders. Yeah, Keely, I mean, I think a lot of our minorities have a similar experience where people have put us on the spot and asked us to kind of do the impossible and represent, I guess, ideologically symbolize the entire group. And I mean, it's just, it's such a ridiculous ask. Like our last episode of The Orange Table literally was a conversation <laughs> how can you forget Aisha um with Rebecca Adams who we don't really agree with on anything um yeah and I, I think that she would be just as insulted at the prospect of us representing the black um the black community's thoughts as we would in the opposite situation so yeah it's just it's beyond ridiculous I do want to pull us back to a conversation around um, kind of the specific organizing of natives at Princeton. And my question is around what organizing has been done on in order to get a land acknowledgement and where we're at with that. I know they are working on one. I think I'm a bit hesitant just because I feel like very often land acknowledgements can either go like one of two ways, like in a way that it's like very performative and really just so that it makes the university look good or it can be something more genuine. Um, but if it's going to be, I mean, I'm like not really a fan of lending alternates unless they're coupled with concrete action. And I think that the university needs to actually start committing resources and funding and doing stuff to support native students and not just saying, 
oh, you know, a long time ago, this land was native land. And they, I mean, in my opinion, I think a land acknowledgement for the university needs to include returning the land and starting to pay rent to the tribes who used to be here. Yeah, I agree with Jessica. Princeton needs to give the land back and just start paying money for it. Like they stole it, like they can just give it back. <laughs> it's good etiquette and stuff. And so I just think the whole US should do that. Just give back our land. And then like even the White House needs to pay rent too. I don't know whose land they're on, but like, yeah, like mm -hmm, everyone needs to. Golf courses need to pay rent. National parks should pay rent. Like my house should pay rent. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, and I think, yeah, we, we, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And just to finish up here, because I do want to be respectful of your time, um, and this conversation has been great and long, and I've loved every minute of it, but it does have to come to a close at some point. Um, I'm interested in kind of bringing in the front end of this episode, which was around divestment in the environment. Um, I guess exploring the relationship, I guess intersection is a better word, between your movement, your activism, and um, what Anna was talking about before, and the divestment movement. What is, what should be the right um, intersection between the two? What I really appreciate about divestment is that you know it starts with the people who are making. Like it's a lot of good, a lot of individuals trying who know that they have to band together to make a big system systemic change, and I think. You know, there's a lot of intersections with indigenous movements because it's like if you think about like Wet'suwet'en, you think about like Standing Rock, there's a lot of resistance to like oil and like big corporations and big money. And I think, you know, it's, I think it's scary too that, you know, we have these big, big companies that have so much power over how we live our lives. They can change the way we live, you know, like we have a big, like water is life like it's such a simple need it's such a simple thing like why can't we why do we have to fight so much why do people have to you know get hurt trying to protect something that's just so like what's the word essential to how we live or just to live and I think like it takes a lot of people and persistence and that's why I guess like there's that intersection as it requires a lot of dedication but like the like the payout or like the end is everything that they're working for is just kind of like what a lot of a lot of natives are working for too and I think like on the on like the offhand though like I do know of some people natives who want pipelines because it means jobs and it means like stability because like you know you're working for a company that like nine to five I can get food on the table for my family and so and I think that's just another like divestment looks different to everybody but also like being in native and indigenous means something different to everybody else like not all natives should be forced to be environmental stewards like you know we're not like the noble person looking over the land all the time we have a lot of history behind us that that has changed how we interact in the world and with other people um just to push back a little bit because i'm from alberta which is kind of the oil part of the country and there's definitely a diversity of opinion amongst first nations here um regarding pipelines and the oil industry in general but i feel like 
what we're talking about is a false choice, <laughs> one that I think uh, is of questionable morals between like forcing impoverished communities of color, often impoverished because of the ways that um, white settler governments have treated um, indigenous people and, and black people who were slaves early on. Um, there's this false choice that's set up for those people between preserving their land and their health and economic success. And I just think that's not um, like a poison pill situation that's set up for any other community. Um, and yeah, I just want to be intentional, but it's not, I guess, playing into that false choice. I absolutely, I think the idea that there's like this, you can either have, you know, economic security or you can have a lasting climate is just such a false paradox. And because um, when you think about like green energy, that creates so many jobs. And I did, I remember doing um, sort of a research page paper, I think it was like my freshman year on the pebble mine, um, which is a proposed huge mine in Alaska. And they tout it, they're like, oh, this is gonna, you know, jumpstart the economy in Alaska, you know, it'll be great um, for the community. And the mine would create like 2000 jobs while simultaneously like ruining the Bristol Bay um, which is this huge, like the world's largest salmon fishery and knocking out like 78,000 jobs. And you can't look at like these small immediate um, jobs that are being created by the plant, but look at like the broader, which jobs are not gonna be available when you destroy the climate and um, you know, you contaminate the waterways and you do all these other things. And it's just, it's immediate, effects are not the same as it's like long lasting, larger stretching effects. Yeah. What makes me like go like, aha, or like, oh my gosh, is that um, when we have like Princeton, a place that's training me or like teaching me how to see the, how, you know, how systems affect other people's lives on a personal level. And here they are like giving money to like these oil companies or whatever. And you're just like, is that a lie? Like under the table shady stuff and you're just like, like who, whose game are you playing? Like who are you trying to support here? Like you have to pick a side. And I think that's like one of my favorite things to do with like white people is make them uncomfortable. It's just like, you can't be neutral here. Like <laughs> you have to address these uncomfortable truths because these uncomfortable truths are my reality. Like who's going to comfort me at the end of the day? Like you're not. So like you have to, you have to make that decision and then you can't be in the middle. It has to be one way or the other. And I think that's what scares a lot of people, you know, cause like one truth to recognize someone else's truth means to like, you know, look at something that you've been ignoring your whole life or just like, don't even have to address. And I get how that's hard, but at the same time, it's like, I'm not going to comfort you. Like, no, no, that's not my job. Like, this is you, this is on you. So, yeah. Die best, Princeton, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful way to end it, Keely. So well said. Um, and yeah, I think that conversations like we had today with, with you two and also with Anna before are kind of one step further in confronting those uncomfortable truths head on. Um, Aisha and I want to give you the biggest thank you possible. I know this conversation meant a lot to me and I think it's going to 
uh, inform a lot of people around what you guys are doing. So thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for having us. It means a lot. Yeah, yeah, thank you.